is it true that Jesus Christ wants to be your personal Savior? It is the case that the Son of God wants to deliver you personally from sin and death, but it is certainly not the case that you have some personal claim on Him or that you have a say in who else He decides to deliver. This is a story about an autonomous God, a God who does whatever He wants, even if we disagree with Him. It's a story about parenthood, about unorthodox parenting tactics, pranks almost, that one father employed to reorient his wayward child. And it's a story that father wanted told to his other children in the hopes that they too might see the light. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. The azure waters of the Mediterranean are not azure. A brownish, yellowish, grayish, blackish stew has replaced them and now laps at Jonah's feet. Squid beaks and half-digested shark cartilage, bits of shrimp carapace and lobster claw and octopus tentacle stick to the newly rescued prophet's shoulders and thighs and cheeks, pasted to his skin by a slimy mix of bile and ambergris. Jonah gasps, so glad to breathe the open air that he barely notices the marine fecal stench. He is lucky to be alive. No, not lucky. Blessed. What an amazing God Yahweh is. Jonah blatantly disobeyed, and still Yahweh saved him, rescued him from drowning, brought him out of a watery grave and up to dry land. The mercy of God. What a beautiful thing. And wonderfully, Jonah didn't have to die in order to avoid preaching to the Ninevites. He can go back home, and those disgusting Assyrians can receive the punishment they deserve. then, Jonah hears a clap of thunder issue from the sky above him. Not another storm. Wait, it's not thunder. It's a voice. The voice. Up, go to Nineveh, that great metropolis, and proclaim to them the proclamation that I am about to speak to you. Jonah listens, wincing, calculating, looking for a loophole, and out. But as he wipes the vomit from his eyes, he finds himself graphically reminded of how his last plan worked. And so he gets up and goes to Nineveh, as Yahweh commanded. Finally.
Meanwhile, in Nineveh, a man abuses a little girl in a dark corner, smiling as he touches her. A block away, a drunken woman beats her slave, screaming obscenities about showing respect and knowing one's place. A band of teenagers prowls the streets looking for their next victim, someone elderly, perhaps. They're always the easiest targets. And how do we know these things are happening? Because in Nineveh, something like this is happening all the time, everywhere. Violence, hatred, and evil hang thick in the streets like poison fog. The hearts of the people smell like rot. The smell brings tears to Yahweh's eyes. This is his city. He oversaw its construction, prepared the land millennia before it was settled, filling Lake Hazer to overflowing, coaxing its cool, clear waters down through the mountains and across a 300-mile course to create the Tigris River, watering the valley, creating a place where people could dwell, people he would create, people he longed for relationship with, people who would break his heart. But maybe... Jonah, after more than three weeks of ten-hour days of travel, finally arrives at the city. The walls of Nineveh rise from the soil and extend to the left and to the right, forming a circle around its center. They stretch on for miles. There must be 15 different gates. Which one should he enter? What does it matter? They all lead inside. Jonah chooses a gate and, trembling, walks into another world. Everything is strange. The smells, non-kosher meats roasting in street-side stands, curious perfumes wafting from the women passing by, the sounds, words in the same Aramaic Jonah uses but with accents that make it sound almost like another language, and the sights. Strange fashions, soaring towers, waving flags, and everywhere. Evidence of Assyria's brutal might. Bronze bands adorning the 25-foot-high timber gates, hammered by artisans with scenes of conquest. The severed heads and hands and feet of the empire's enemies flying in every direction. Giant stone sculptures of creatures with the body of a lion and the wings of an eagle and the head of a man flanking doorways and standing guard over meeting halls. Entire walls covered in carved reliefs depicting the extraordinary siege warfare tactics of the Ninevites. Thousands of warriors flooding over enemy city walls, impaling the people cowering inside. Men wriggling on the end of Assyrian poles like skewered spiders. Jonah shudders and plunges himself further into the belly of the beast. 
How many people have these animals killed? How many women have they raped? How many children have they enslaved? Jonah stops short of the middle of the city. This is far enough. He climbs atop a platform, or an ox cart, or a stairway. Voice dripping with indignation, eyes brimming with rage, and a heart pounding with fear, Jonah shouts at the citizens of Nineveh. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Was there more to the message Yahweh told him to deliver? Perhaps. But this was the part that mattered. This was the part they deserved. Forty days. Not a moment too soon. In fact, not soon enough. Why wait forty days? When the uninvited Jonah proclaimed the news of Yahweh's impending judgment to the people of Nineveh, soldiers gambling at the gates, wealthy merchants doing business in the square, prostitutes on display outside their bordellos, hoodlums laughing and prowling the streets, he expected, surely, a certain kind of reception. Shouted down and strung up on a gallows, perhaps. Mocked and beaten crucified, maybe. Or, in the best-case scenario, ignored. But if this is what he anticipated, it is not what Jonah witnesses. In point of fact, what he does witness is more terrifying to him than any of those outcomes. At the sound of Jonah's voice, Faces turn. Mothers shush their children, and soldiers shove their friends to quiet them down. Traders pause their dealings, all eyes focused on the foreigner, all ears trained on his short, simple message. The Assyrians, of course, are not Hebrews. They have been trained over generations to look for religious signs from the heavens cobbled together indications of divine favor or disapproval they might find in weather or the cosmos. And lately, there has been no shortage of these. They've witnessed a number of events, famines, eclipses, things of that sort, not to mention some disturbingly failed campaigns on the part of the Assyrian military, an anomalous reality, to be sure. And so perhaps the soil of the Ninevites' hearts has been tilled. Perhaps they're primed, prepared to heed the message they hear that day from the lips of a grouchy prophet who's traveled all the way from Judah. Jonah speaks the words of Yahweh, and something happens inside of these people. Terror, the dread of coming judgment, but also compunction, penitence, change. Somewhere a man considers what he's been doing to that little girl in the shadows, 
as if he's truly seeing it for the first time and weeps. Somewhere, a woman apologizes to her slave, dresses the wounds she inflicted, asks for forgiveness. Somewhere, teenage boys knock on the door of an elderly man, one of them reaching his gangly arm out and opening his fist to offer six gold coins, twice as many as they stole from him. If not these things, then other things, beautiful things, happening all over the city. Yahweh smiles tearfully as the city walls become a chrysalis and Nineveh is transformed. Mothers and fathers tell their children, who will not live to see the sun rise six weeks from now, about the God of the Hebrews, who seems to rule over the Assyrians as well. When their sons and daughters reach up to wipe a tear from their parents' eye and ask why they weren't told about this before, the Ninevites reply simply, we did not know, or perhaps we thought it wasn't true. Neighbors agree to fast together. They have little appetite anyway. Sackcloth is donned. Social and economic striations disappear as men and women of every class join in the wave of transfiguration. And then, word reaches the king. He's told of the message delivered by the man they call Jonah. And somehow, he too is moved by the prophecy. Despite the reluctant messenger, despite the king's bricked up heart. But this is what happens when a message is alive. It sneaks or gallops or charms or fights its way into places no one would ever have guessed possible. The mighty emperor of the vast Assyrian Empire rises from his throne, descends from its platform, and stands on the same ground as his people. He removes his royal robe, the symbol of his power, and replaces it with sackcloth. He gathers dust and ash into a pile and sits down. Then he issues a proclamation to ensure that every single one of his citizens, every living thing within the bounds of Nineveh, is joining this demonstration of regret, this decision to change. By order of the king and his nobles, he dictates. No man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. 
And then, these words, a strange addition to a royal decree, almost offered as an aside, as if the king forgot to stop his dictation. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Yahweh watches the kings and riders with the edict, watches those emissaries race to the furthest reaches of the city, and watches as they dismount and canvas entire neighborhoods, only to find everyone already fasting, on their knees, talking to him, saying they're sorry, wanting to become different. The next day, their fervor has not waned. A week passes, they stay the course. Two weeks. This is a new Nineveh. And as all of this happens in the Assyrians' hearts, something happens in Yahweh's heart. He relents, decides not to overthrow the city and bring this disaster on the people. Yahweh changes course. But when Yahweh shares this news with his prophet, Jonah is livid. Please, Yahweh, he prays. Isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. He remembers an old refrain he was taught as a boy and shakes his head. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. The mercy of God, what a detestable thing. Then Jonah, who before his encounter with the sea monster could not bear the thought of living in a world where the God of Israel would send him to preach to the Gentiles, still cannot bear that thought. More than that, in fact, he absolutely cannot conceive of living in a world in which those Gentiles turn to the God of Israel, and the God of Israel turns to them. Jonah looks toward the heavens above Nineveh and begs, And now, Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. When Jonah is done scolding the Almighty God, Yahweh asks Jonah a question. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah ignores him. In a huff, he leaves the city and heads east to a good vantage point. There's still a bit of time until the 40 days are up. Perhaps Yahweh will change his mind about changing his mind. Relent from his relenting. <laughs> that would be a sight, wouldn't it? These unholy Assyrians with their desperate hope of deliverance. How dare they even think that they could turn, like they could make it all better after all they'd done. And then Yahweh, like a cosmic pushover, letting them off the hook. It's just, but yes, what if, what if Yahweh took back the gift the Assyrians didn't deserve, yanked it out from under them, toyed with them? That would be a sight.
It's worth hoping for, waiting to see, just in case. He finds an overlook that's perfect. But it's hot up there on the hill, out there in the sun. And so Jonah makes a shelter from whatever brush he can gather to sit beneath, a grandstand from which to root for the death of his enemies. It is poorly constructed and does not really work. How far is his perch out east of the city? 700 yards? A mile? Whatever the distance, Jonah has succeeded, separated himself from what Yahweh is up to. As far as the east is from the west. Yahweh, though, has not given up on his runaway son. Just as the heat of the day becomes unbearable, the scorching sun easily pushing its way through the latticework of Jonah's meager shelter, Yahweh conjures a plant, a climbing vine, and sends it up the legs of the hut. Its spiraling stem coils skyward, leaves unfurling one after another after another, yawning blossoms adorning Jonah's now verdant tiny house like stars in an emerald sky. In seconds, the threat of exposure is allayed. Jonah finds himself bathed in merciful shade. And for the first time in days, weeks perhaps, Jonah smiles. The mercy of God. What a beautiful thing. Nothing happens to Nineveh that day, but at least Jonah's able to be disappointed in comfort. He sleeps well that night, curled up under his little arbor. But as the sun rises the next morning, Yahweh speaks to a worm. Like a dog called by its master, the worm jerks its head toward the vine, wriggling its way hungrily toward the delicious target. Ravenous, it attacks the plant, chomping its way through the leaves one after another after another, consuming blossoms and stems. Its appetite is miraculous. Before long, the plant withers and dies. Jonah wakes to the punishing sun burning its way through the now naked shelter. He blinks groggily, and Yahweh speaks to the wind. From the east, even further away from Judah than they are now, how far does Yahweh's jurisdiction extend? From the east, a searing wind blows, carrying with it the heat of a furnace, dismantling, branch by branch, Jonah's hideout. Eventually, Jonah, exposed, the sun beating relentlessly down on his head, feels faint. Heatstroke crouches at the door. This may finally be the end. Fine. But why would Yahweh do something like this? To provide relief with the vine? Rescue, really, in this heat. And then to yank it out from under him? Like he's toying with him? It's better for me to die, Jonah says aloud, to no one in particular. Then Yahweh speaks 
to Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, Jonah replies. It is right. I'm angry enough to die. A beat passes. Jonah catches his breath. You cared about the plant, says Yahweh, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared one day and vanished the next. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who, like children, don't know right from wrong? Say nothing of all the innocent animals. Jonah looks out at Nineveh, its streets teeming with fasting sinners. They look different than they did 15 days ago. The mercy of God. What a... Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to part two of the story of Yahweh and Jonah, a story without an end, really, uh, in scripture, almost as if God wants us to write the ending with our own actions. All right, two things. Number one, if you liked hearing the story of Jonah this way, you can let me know by leaving a super quick review or even just a rating on Apple Podcasts. As of this moment, there are a couple hundred there, and I would love to get even more up. It signals to folks that they are likely to encounter something good when they give Holy Ghost Stories a shot. And second, something very exciting. Uh, as you've gathered, the musical score of Holy Ghost Stories is a huge part of the storytelling. I search high and low for the best pieces that will complement the script and create the most immersive experience for you. Uh, usually I license those pieces from a couple of music libraries I subscribe to for a monthly fee. But a while back, I came across the music of Kendall Ramsur, a cellist composer who does extraordinary work and who had some songs that I wanted so badly to use in one of these stories. I reached out to him to see if he'd license them directly to me for this podcast, and he was gracious enough to agree. It was going to be a good bit more expensive than what I normally do, but I wanted to invest in Holy Ghost Stories this way and in Kendall's art, so I went for it. So, the first scene of parts one and two of the pushover, the runaway, and the belly of the beast is scored with these two gorgeous pieces from Kendall Ramsher. Go back and listen real quick to the beginning of each of these episodes and enjoy that music. Uh, these pieces are amazing. But that's not all. When Kendall and I talked over Zoom about possibly licensing his music, we just hit it off. Uh, before we talked, he'd listened to an episode of Holy Ghost Stories that I sent him, and he loved it. And during our conversation, one thing led to another, and we made some plans. That's all I can tell you right now, but you can be expecting some super fun news in a few weeks that has to do with me and Holy Ghost Stories and the amazing Kendall Ramsur. You're gonna love it. All right, thanks again for listening. Leave that review if you would. Finally, Thanks to all of you who are partnering with me on Patreon. You're amazing. Speaking of which, a quick shout out to the Tours: Rick, Ken and Patty, Luke and Haley, Mindy, Maddie, Eric and Jody, John, April, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Steve, Kimmy, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Jamie H., Bill and Trina, Stephen, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie M. You guys are great. Thank you so very much. Till next time. <laughs>